1966, there was uh, a 16-year-old young man who had dyslexia. School wasn't his thing, and he dropped out. Uh, which is kind of this recipe for a tragic tale for the trajectory of your life, except the kid was mildly motivated and he put together uh, a magazine for students. It was kind of a, you know, the 60s version of a hipster without having Twitter or social media, but he wanted to connect with his generation and he was a bit of a, of, of a pop savant, if you will. And so he starts this magazine and he begins selling subscriptions to other students. You can imagine what it was like trying to sell subscriptions to students in the 60s, but it was cool enough uh, that they were willing to do it. And he went around to businesses, the right kind of businesses, that would run advertisements in his self-made magazine. And he did this for four years, enough that he put together enough little scratch that he started, because he really had this eye or an ear for music, and so he started doing record sales to the subscribers of his newspaper, or of his magazine. And so he started doing that for another two years, and all the while he's just kind of cobbling together a little income till he gets enough together to put together a storefront that's gonna be a record shop. But in the record shop, he also has a studio. I mean, this guy was probably a little before his time, but he had kind of the pulse of his generation. And he was trying to make a go of it as sort of this music and, and kind of cultural commentator, uh, but he, he was trying to use the studio to bring in other bands. Well, basically, not making any money, he brought in a guy by the name of Mike Oldfield, who put together a song that was called Tubular Bells. You might remember the song Tubular Bells. It was the soundtrack for a movie called Exorcist, and it sold five million copies. That young record store owner with the studio went on to form a label, and the label took on names like, oh, the Sex Pistols, Culture Club, even the Rolling Stones took on the name Virgin, Virgin Atlantic. Maybe you've heard of Sir Richard Branson. He went on to start lots of things like a whole airline and uh, a mobile phone company and, and trains. And I mean, he got very diversified for like 400 companies worth of diversification. Pretty good for a dyslexic high school dropout who just happened to have the kind of perseverance, the kind of can-do attitude to say, I'm not going to let things normal trappings get in the way. It might look impossible, but that's old, old saying, where there's a will, there might be a way. Nehemiah, I believe, wasn't the kind of go-getter that Richard Branson was, but Nehemiah had a strong conviction. He was living in exile uh, a thousand miles away from the ruins that were Jerusalem. He was living in the king's winter palace but he gets word that the walls were, were deteriorated. Now, there had been some people that had moved back in. In fact, Ezra had even shown up, and they had rebuilt the temple, except they were living 
completely vulnerable. And one of the things that we understand is to be effectively the people of God, there needs to be something set apart. There needs to be something distinct to protect the identity of the community. They needed walls. Otherwise, they were just going to be continually a people who were vulnerable and exploited and conquered. Well, this king decides, well, I, I, I kind of know the reputation of you Jews as sort of a, a, a rebellious people, a, a wanting to be independent people, but he lets them go. But it wasn't just about walls being built, it was about gates being hung. So you can't have walls without gates. Similarly, if you can't just have gates without walls. Both are important to function fully as the people of God. And again, as I said earlier, I think we're here tonight because he answered the call with great perseverance, with great conviction. So he met a very impossible task. We don't know anything about his construction background, but he's like, okay, God said so. We need this. But then he had a lot of opposition. He even had people that were undermining his character, trying to distract him from the work. He tried to rally people and effectively did, but there was a lot of apathy because they had just accepted, well, this is just the way it is. And I think there's a lot of that today. Well, it's always been this way. Oh, we've always just kind of stepped over things. We've always just kind of lived in the rubble. We've always lived with this kind of broken humanity. And he says, let me remind you of who you are. In other words, let me remind you of the identity that God has for you, that he has called you to be this light, salt, distinct, and even peculiar. And so he rallies the people of God who had become sort of complacent, saying, this, this is just our normal. And he's like, that's not God's normal. And so God, through Nehemiah, through us, throughout scripture and history and covenant, relang- covenant relationship has been trying to restore and repair a broken humanity. And he's looking for a curious group of people who would simply say, yes, I'm in. I will, or I do. You know, it's funny, I read a little bit more about Richard Branson, um, and he made the comment, which kind of captures his um, can-do bravado, his sort of, uh, let's just throw caution to the wind, but it said how he ended up starting the airline portion of his business was he was on a flight that got canceled to the Virgin Islands. Maybe some of you have read or heard his story. He was going on his way because there was a special lady friend that was waiting for him in the Virgin Islands, and the last flight out was canceled. And so he's sitting around the, the airline desk with all of these other people who are sort of bemoaning the fact, with all their vacation clothes on and their bags packed, looking forward to a good time, and they're out of luck. So in this moment, this sort of impulsive moment, he runs over and he actually charters a private plane and then he grabs a board and he writes out (laughs) Virgin Islands, $29 one way. And he just holds up a sign and he fills the flight, pays for himself and he gets there. And that's essentially how he says Virgin Airlines was birthed. I think it would help if we maybe at times could throw a little more sensibility or caution to the wind and do things with sort of a kind of risk, uh, do things with sort of a kind of um, 
not a full-scale plan or some kind of improvised, we're going to see how this goes. I call it winging it ministries. Let's just see what God does. Welcome to Mission Hills. But maybe you might consider that kind of recipe because you don't understand how God is at work and how God wants to show up and how God might leverage all that you have right now, right here today. So what I want to talk about just in these kind of few moments we have is Revelation, I keep going back to Revelation because it's the end of the series, but it's Nehemiah chapter 6 and 7, and I just want to highlight a couple of verses. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look in Nehemiah chapter 6, and he makes some interesting comments about, um, about the people of God. And after going through a lot of opposition and people trying to distract him from the work and even some of their own kind that were exploiting, kind of uh, uh, charging uh, an unnecessary interest towards the people who are doing the work, uh, he, he calls out his own people and he, he kind of draws them. But what it talks about is this ability to answer God's call. And answering God's call is never an easy thing to do, but answering, God, uh, answering God's call always starts with us having to answer it together. So when people say, well, I'm just, uh, I'm just spiritual, uh, I'm not religious, or uh, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't feel the need to go to church, to which I would say, how are people benefiting from your gifts? And how, are, how uh, are you being able to receive God's provision that I think God intended for people to gather and to experience? And so in, in the first part, in Nehemiah chapter 6, uh, it says this in verses 15 and 16. Now, so the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days. Keep in mind that this had been destroyed for a hundred years and there had been some initial settlers that came back for 25 years. Now it was a huge undertaking, but they did it in 52 days, roughly, you know, less than two months. And then he says these, uh, these words, uh, when our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Wouldn't it be neat if the testimony of the church wasn't its wealth or wasn't its production value or wasn't its, its sort of shiny objects, but oh my gosh, only God could pull this off. Only God could bring people of this kind of economic, cultural, education background and throw a party. That's what we've been saying, is that God always used the metaphor of a meal to draw people together, to draw people into relationship. We have the idea of communion, that all are welcome at the communion table, but in Revelation 3.20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone would hear my voice and open the door, I want to come in and what? Fix them confront him, perform an intervention. No, I want to come in and dine with him and he with me. The picture is that God wants to use the idea of a meal to establish his presence in our lives. So as Mission Hills Church, we're getting darn creative with the way we do meals, right? 
So let's do um, three kinds of renowned barbecue with trivia and live music, and we'll do it in a brewery. Why? Because we want to take the idea of God drawing people in with a meal. Or let's do Cinco de Bayou, where we bring in crawfish and jambalaya and, and queso and fajitas, and um, throw out a piñata with your favorite Texas-Mexican beer and say, come all you who are weary. Bring your neighbors, bring your friends, bring the Muslims, bring the Burmese, and we're just gonna have a party in the park. There is a way for us to be the church that looks radically different, but the way we accomplish this is when we answer God's call together. It's like being a shareholder. We all need to just kind of do the roll up the sleeves and go, how does this work? It, it, it's each one reach one, right? I mean, that's the way multiplication is gonna work. We could keep throwing events here and doing something that kind of feels like addition. I would rather do it through multiplication where each of us are doing the work. Uh, and so unlike Richard Branson, the only extraordinary thing about getting the wall built in 52 days was probably all these individual lives coming together for one common purpose. But they did the work right? They blistered their hands. They strained their backs doing the lifting. They risked their own safety. Remember, they had to take up arms and work in shifts. They grew weary. They worked in shifts, but they did it all together. See, restoration is always a group effort. And the idea about being an intentional community, and I'm not talking about community like familiar faces that I see in the stands at Little League or on the soccer sidelines for a season or, or even in the neighborhood. I'm talking about an intentional community where we are coming alongside each other in faith and saying, let's do this together. Doing more by doing it together. Answering God's call always starts by doing it together. The second thing, and I would just pull this out of um, chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 3, and he says, um, After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I, I, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint the residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. See, Here's what we understand about the work of restoration is that not only do answering God's call comes together, but it also comes personally. And, and, and so what we have is a sort of soft launch. There's this kind of grand opening, but it's not that grand. Okay, we got walls and we got gates and it's fully functional, but we don't have city employees. We don't have an army or a militia. We don't have law enforcement. We don't really have any staffing except us. So this is how it gets done. So let's work on kind of a reduced schedule. It makes perfect business sense. When you're just starting out, you kind of know that you need to do all the work. So it's not like you have people who have been trained in gatekeeping or, or tower watching. You just have you and me who happen to live near that portion of the wall. 
And so they said, okay, it's on all of us to look out. But since we're limited, we're going to work. Don't open the gates until basically it's noon hour. Because if you open it at dawn, there's going to be too many of us who are still in bed, still sleeping, and we're the most vulnerable. And we don't want to be conquered after we just got built and reestablished. It makes brilliant sense. But then he starts to enlist all the people very personally. Okay, we need you in children's ministry, and we need you planning an event, and we need you baking cobbler, and we need you making coffee. We need you writing checks. We need you setting up and tearing down. This is how this works. The growth of Mission Hills Church isn't this hope that someday, wouldn't it be great to have a few more staff? Or someday, wouldn't it be neat that we just have our own facilities and we don't have to tear down? Well, someday, wouldn't it be neat if we just got a few more people? Yes and yes and yes, but I don't want to wait as if that day needs to arrive for us to do the work of restoration. And, and by the way, everything I just named talked about just doing the work of church. What I really want to do is, is allow you to do the work in your neighborhood, in your community. That's why with our tribes, we want tribes to exist, not just for the support of one another, but for the benefit of people living on the margins in Austin. I think that's compelling. And so uh, the, the, the sort of distinctiveness that I see of Mission Hills Church is that we want to create uh, and rally around a living faith to build God's kingdom in us and through us. Well, how does that look like? Well, you know, we all go our separate ways after tonight, but what will be left? Well, we have s seven rhythms that I think are really simple ways to express faith. I talk about them all the time, but I'd like to challenge you. Do you know them? Can you memorize them? Can you talk about them to your kids? You don't have to be a seminary graduate to be able to talk about the generosity of God and how God invites us to steward all of ourselves because we recognize that all that we have comes from God. It's just the generosity of God. Or hospitality, that we're intentional about making room for someone else. Or the idea of community, that we're just willing to do the hard work of finding what's common among us, even if we come from different economic or ethnic, cultural or, or educational backgrounds. Maybe we come from a different life stage, but we are the church and we find what's common among us. Or we, we learn things like gratitude, where we come in praise and let it interrupt the sort of narrative of, of negativity in our lives and go, I want to bring and declare God's worth. I mean, these are rhythms that I think are really tangible, really concrete, really simple, but they can be transformational if we let them, if we know them, and then we start to practice them, and then we host conversations. It was said at a tribe meeting, uh, I appreciated Buddy who said this, and the reason I remember that is because Buddy's a pastor's kid. And he says, it's always a little daunting to go out to someone and say, share your faith, because that feels like, oh my gosh, uh, you know, eternity is weighing in the balance, and I'm not going to have all the, the right words to say. I'm like, share the rhythms. I can talk about the generosity of God all day long, and I'm not the world's richest guy, but I am taken care of. I, 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 you know, I can talk about apprenticing and people who have mentored me 
and invested in me. Um, I, I, I can talk about compassion. Um, I, I mean, these are things that are just easy to share, right? The third thing that comes out of this verse in answering God's call, so it's answering God's call together. It's answering God's call uh, personally, but it's answering God's call continually um, uh, or continuously. And in, in verse 4, it simply says this of chapter, four, uh, verse, chapter 7, verse 4. He says, um, Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So all of a sudden, if you're one of the people that are living there, in and among them, and you've got this, first it was the temple, and Ezra's like, we got to build the temple. And then Nehemiah shows up, and he's trying to like rally the troops to build this wall and hang these gates. And everyone's got a job to do. Can't we just sort of relax now that we got it built? And now he wants to get into this housing program. And it feels like, what's next? The marketplace, our economy? And he's like, mm-hmm. Because there's a way to live in God's oikos, God's household, his economy, where we can reflect God's care. There's a way to build out. And, and the idea that somehow we finally get to arrive at a place of comfort, we get to arrive at a place of, of sort of convenience, is the place that we plateau. I like to tell my parents who are in their 70s and 80s, Mom, Dad, there is no spiritual retirement. I'm sorry. Do not get lost in the crowd. You have too much wisdom, too much knowledge. You know how to stay married for 55-some years. Please don't, don't coast at this place in your life. There is this desire to feel like, my life is so busy, I just need to be able to show up to church and it be convenient and easy. Except that we're not trying to play church, we're trying to grow a living faith. Let's figure out what is it that we're actually going for. And for that to unfold, our faith has to be continual and continuous. And so right when things are getting, feeling like they're established, he's like, all right, now we're going to build homes. Let's do row housing or something. And, and then, you know, the marketplace next. And there's this feeling like, what's next? My my, my suggestion to you is simply this, to have the right expectation of God is understand that God is always and continually inviting us to next steps. While you might struggle with inadequacy, my, while you might beat yourself up over why am I not further along, understand that the call, the beckoning, the invitation of God is next steps. And that's the most important call that you can ever answer. And when you answer that, and you take one more. And you walk further into faith and community and mission. Answering God's call is the most important thing we do because it aligns us with the heart of God. It doesn't feel like it's an, it, we, we get to accept what's normal around us when we do that. I want to just close by painting a picture, and I don't want to be too abstract for you, but um, this is a, a picture of what I think it means to be able to shift into what does it mean for us to have a living faith? Or what does it mean for us to have Christ as our identity? That we say, oh, Christ is the center of my life. 
But I want to start just by painting two different pictures. And the first picture is, uh, is a circle. And, and tell me if this sounds familiar. This represents our life. And we start to portion it out like this. And it starts to feel like a pie diagram, right? And so we have things that are really important to us. Like we might say, oh, this is family. Man, th that, that is a priority to me. Um, but this is sort of my fitness. You know, I, I don't want to just get out of shape or I want to grow old and, 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 and be hurting and decrepit. I want to maintain this kind of vitality. Oh, but you know what? Um, I've got some obligations to meet. So let's just go ahead and call this work. Uh, and, then, and then all of a sudden, then the kids start doing, you know, oh, they just got a little older. And so then you have to kind of go, well, then there's kids' activities, right? Uh, there's, there's soccer. And then there's, uh, and guess what? It's to the point now where my kids um, stay up later than me because I can't do their homework for them, but they can't go to bed before I do. Uh, and, and so on and on it goes. And then we're like, well, I, I, you know, I've kind of got my hobbies. I mean, man, it's college football season. I build my life around um, when my, we were just talking about a friend of ours. They, they went to um, her husband and wife, no kids, just two dogs, which technically, I guess, count as their kids. They treat them that way. Uh, another sermon. Um, but uh, um, they build their day around two colleges when they're playing during the day, uh, and that's their Saturday. Did I mention they don't have kids? Like, did, did I mention that, you know, does this start to feel like it? But then we would say something like this. Well, my faith is really important too. And faith starts to feel like this kind of piece of the pie. And depending on how demanding work gets, Oh, it's tax season, and I'm, I'm an accountant, so there goes the Sabbath. I just got to work seven days a week until April 15th, and then I can breathe again. Oh, okay, that's, that's one way, but then faith gets crowded out. God feels distant. I don't feel close. Or um, have you ever seen this scenario play out? Work got so demanding, success was happening, but it felt like an insatiable appetite, so it kind of cut into family and a marriage was lost? Do, do you know that story? Because that story is real too. My point is that when we operate in this circle, all of these things feel like they're competing against each other. And then you're just waiting for the next inspirational moment or crisis moment where it feels like, okay, new normal. I've just had this near-death experience. I just had a cancer diagnosis come clean. I've got to reprioritize and I'm going to start saying no to all these things. And it's just a matter of time before we end up back at this same center. So let me paint for you what I think is a more sustainable picture of the Christian life. And it looks like this. Not a donut, although that would be a very church um, kind of metaphor to use. But uh, something that looks uh, something a little bit more like spokes on a wheel. The same things that demand our time and attention. So we say, oh yeah, my finances. And my marriage. And my kids. And my health. And, um, and uh, 
we, we start to go through all of these things and you, you think, oh, well, um, uh, how about my career aspirations and the idea of where I'm going to locate and who, who I'm going to build community with. And then we start to take into things about where, where we might live. And all of the things that are equally sort of demanding and important all start with Christ at the center. And the shift is, how do I see God informing my life choices? So if I start to see God at the center of my life, how does God speak to how I steward my wealth? Is there something yet yielded? Is there something, I was talking to a, a, a guy, um, he's single, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't have kids, um, and I said, do you believe that God is the source of your life? Yeah, he's been so good to me. This was a guy who was a, you know, a division one athlete and he'd always excelled in sports and, and now he's got a, a career that's got a, a, a good upside um, and he's a strong Christian and, and he's, he's given some money to college buddies who are doing mission work and, and little trips and things like that. And I said, no, but do you, do you tithe? Do you trust God with your tithes and start with the first fruits of what you make saying, Lord, it's all from you, so I want to give back. And he's like, no, no. I, I, I said, well, why not? You would say God's the source of all of it. And he says, I guess I don't trust that there's going to be enough at the end. Really honest. But if we're all grappling with finite resources, particularly money, we have to start with who's the source. Am I the source? My ability to sort of hustle, my ability to just kind of work harder? Or can I honor God with a Sabbath? Can I honor God with my first fruits and say, it starts with you. It's all from you. The education that I received, yeah, my parents paid for my undergraduate degree, but why me and not some other refugee here? My, my next breath, my last breath, it's, it's a gift. It's all from him. Uh, and then we start to go through, okay, kids, oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming. But can I just simply say, kids are supposed to be a priority, but they're not supposed to be the center of our lives. And maybe one of the biggest flaws in, in kids today is the way we're parenting, is because we're orbiting them. This, this is making it really hard. This is the every kid gets a trophy. And, and so what I'm suggesting is, is that make your kids a priority, but make sure that they understand how to share <laughs> and make sure they understand how to honor their brothers and sisters. Make sure that sometimes they go along and we used to pull up on the curb and it would be all young couples going inside and we just look at Bjorn and Annika. Tonight, this is not about you. Tonight, there are no kids your age but we want you to enjoy our friends tonight and we want you to enjoy this meal tonight. We expect you to sit at the table. We expect you to just be a part of it. And then when we have our conversation, we've got a books and some videos and that you can watch in the other room. Okay, done. Part of that wasn't just because we didn't want to pay for a babysitter. We wanted to instill something in them that they would understand that not everything revolves around them. When we start to put Christ at the center, we start to 
orbit around Christ. And so if we're thinking, wow, I've got a job opportunity and it pays so much more, except that it takes you out of biblical community. It takes you out of really good support structure. You know, I've never once been asked when someone says, you know, I'm thinking about making a move. Do you know a good church there? Because that, that is definitely a part of our decision because we know what we have here. And to lose that, well, don't just trust that you're just going to make it up. I've, I've had so many conversations with people who get to a, a new sponsor. I just can't find what I had. Pray about it. Make that part of the equation. So don't just make net worth and dollar signs the, the, the choice in the move or in the promotion. I was talking to a guy. He had a chance to, to manage this huge, this, uh, um, Let's just say he owned uh, one of the major sports teams and he was going to manage his, uh, his personal investments. Um, but, but he had two kids that were under the ages of three. And I was like, okay, but you're like two years away from soccer on Saturday morning. You're like five years removed from them not even being interested in crawling in bed with you in the morning for snuggle. Is this worth taking that job for? I mean, because those are the kind of choices you make. If that work is just going to set you up and maybe set them up financially, except that you kind of lose this season of life. What I'm saying is we need to make an adjustment. When we start answering God's call, it means that we start recognizing that God is the source of all that we're doing, all that we are and all that we have. And we're saying, how can we leverage our time, our talents, our abilities, our treasure for God's glory? Because the world that you and I are living in is not the world that God intended. And he wants us to be a part of his restoration. And I think God's call starts with us answering that together. And I think it, it, it comes when, when we start to answer it real personally, but then we start answering it continuously. So it's not, oh, I got saved. No, there's always a next step. So let me pray as we kind of finish up our time in worship together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for how you provide for us and how you care for us. We thank you for uh, your son. And uh, I pray that we would be able, um, both individually and collectively, cultivate a living, breathing, active faith that understands your heart better, that, that be able to form Christ in us. I pray that we would have a growing faith that we can leverage for the benefit of others who don't yet know you, but I pray that we would have a faith that is transferable, that we could put a deposit starting at home, starting with our kids, uh, starting with people that you're inviting us into developmental relationship. Father, we want a living faith, but I pray that uh, we would answer that call to be part of your restoration work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.